Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent S. And I'm C, the provocateur. And joining us this week, beaming in, it is Michael, a.k.a. the nicest man on Twitter, a.k.a. Trek Lad. Wow, that's uh, that's quite an introduction. I, I don't know if uh, I, I don't know if I'm the nicest guy on Twitter. Uh, I, I feel like uh, that's probably something that goes to you, Scott. And I'm I'm surrounded by so many wonderful people on Twitter. Uh, but no, thank you. It's it's an absolute honour to be on this podcast. I I've been interrupted. I was climbing some mountain somewhere in the American desert, and uh, and someone chucked some sunglasses at me. So I've I've taken in the mission brief, and and those sunglasses have exploded. And I'm ready to talk spy movies. And I never thought we'd get an MI2 uh, reference at the beginning of this one, but I, I'm all for it. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that was I was surprised that's where he went, but I'm 100% in favor of the choice. I feel like that film deserves a little bit more love, but that's probably a conversation for, a, for another time in another episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, tackling Mission Impossible 2 because... Uh... The most two thousands movie ever made. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's got Limp Biscuit in the soundtrack. It's it's made for that time, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Oh, Limp Biscuit. <laughs> well, again, welcome aboard, Trek lad. Uh, I'm going to call you Michael from now on because saying your handle just sounds a bit weird. Is that all right? Yeah, no, no, that's totally fine. Um, yeah, I, when people go, "Hey, Trek lad," I'm just usually I, I get a bit weird. I'm just like, yeah, no, um, no, Michael, Michael's good. Um, but I kind of do want to call you guys Agent Scott and Can the Provocateur. So that's probably what I'm gonna do. But uh, I'm fine with just uh, the Agent M for the for the for the, the duration of this conversation. How's that? That's totally me. fair with us. Yeah. <laughs> And just to, uh, you know, clarify, though, Treklad, tell us a little bit about your background. You know, what uh, what is your uh, own podcast about? Oh, wow. OK, so, yeah, I mean, truthfully, I've been podcasting since uh, the first lockdown here in the UK. So it's only been a few months, but um, it's been well, well, a few months it's been. Mm. Um, yeah. So I've got a podcast called Networking on Nimbus Free, uh, which is a Star Trek community podcast where I uh, want to get to know as many members of the Star Trek fan community as I possibly can. So each episode is dedicated to a sit down, uh, informal conversation with a member of the Star Trek fan community and, and learn really kind of what makes Star Trek so special uh, for them. Because everybody's got a story, haven't they? And, and that's what makes, uh, you know, the podcast world so great. So uh, Networking on Nimbus Free is the podcast there. But I'm, I'm also making content on YouTube and, and also just, you know, trying to trying to have a good time, trying to inject a little bit of happiness and joy into people's days on Twitter, you know, just by using Star Trek, really. Right. And Scott and I appeared on an episode of Trek Lad's uh, YouTube show. You can check that out just looking up Trek Lad on YouTube, um, where we tackled Our Man Bashir, a James Bond related Star Trek episode of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that was a fun crossover. Really, really enjoyed that. I mean, I'd been looking for someone to to talk Aman Bashir with uh, for a while, and when I had Scott on uh, on the Nimbus Free podcast, uh, Scott was like, uh, "Sorry, Special Agent uh, Special Agent S." He was like, "You got to get Special Agent C on the podcast because uh, he's a huge Aman Bashir fan." And uh, yeah, we we jumped on a on a live stream. We had so much fun, um, and we're gonna have to do it again with with another episode. But the thing is, the Star Trek universe. Ah, it's a little short on spy stuff, so I've come over to your neck of the woods, 
um, for, for this conversation. We might have to do Enterprise Incident or something where Kirk goes undercover as a Romulan or something. I'm down for that. That works. Yeah, that works. <laughs> well, sort of spiraling off into the spy world, Mike, how do you feel about spy movies yourself? Uh, so, I mean, aside from the Star Trek universe, I'm I'm a huge nerd. I mean, it kind of goes without saying if I'm really, really into Star Trek. But um, when I when I was growing up, it was it was Star Trek and it was just movies. I've always been uh, really enamored with films, you know, whether it's kind of just enjoying watching them or being really into the filmmaking process and understanding techniques. Um, I, I don't really discriminate against any genre. I, I mean, I'm I'm happy to kind of sit down and watch anything, really. Uh, so I have quite a diverse um, taste in film, and, and as a result, quite a diverse collection. Uh, spy movies for me, I think, you know, as a Brit, it's national requirement that you're into the Bond movies. Um, I've had a bit of a uh, a bit of an up and down relationship with with uh, Bond over the years. When I was a kid, I was really, really into the movies, uh, particularly the older ones, which you guys might find quite surprising because I, I grew up when Pierce Brosnan was obviously rocking the screen with, with GoldenEye and all those kind of movies. But I was always really into um, the Sean Connery uh, movies. Mm. I, I remember when I was a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with You Only Live Twice. Um, also because I think Roald Dahl wrote the screenplay, uh, screenplay and I was like, how how is this a thing um obviously as a kid you don't know anything but you know it's uh i always thought that was really really interesting growing up that that film has some questionable storyline development in it um but but it's a bond film and it's a it's a product of its time um i absolutely loved daniel craig taking over the role of of bond 2006 and uh really really liked uh, Casino Royale but ever since then it's kind of been a bit of a rocky ride for me and um, I, I think that I'm probably like most people when you think a spy it's very synonymous with Bond um, but there are other movies in the genre that I absolutely love and uh, and I have done some preparation in anticipation of being asked some questions so don't you worry. It's, it's interesting when you said um, just because you were British you went into James Bond I was worried it was going to be just because I'm British I love Johnny English. <laughs> I uh well this is this is awkward. Uh, I actually quite like Johnny English um as as a bit of a send up um and and honestly this is going to this 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 might be a conversation where you're like whoa this best bank this and have a conversation another time. Uh the the most recent one Johnny English free it's the best one. Oh, very commercial. Mm, there we go, yeah. Hmm, okay. Um so last question for you Agent M. <laughs> Favorite spy film currently yeah so doing a bit of preparation for this because i kind of wanted to um drop like the 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 hipster's favorite so i'd just go Mm. like north by northwest um love me a good hitchcock um but that would just be easy um i i've got uh, i got you know if i was to have a top 10 list that all of these films are quite close together Uh, i'm not going to go with a bond movie because uh, that would just be easy. Um, but I'm sure you guys have probably seen this, or and if you haven't, then it's definitely something to cover at some point. But I'm a huge fan of um, Steven Soderbergh's um, Haywire with oh. uh, Gina Carano. I think that that's a really smart spy movie that has just been buried and nobody talks about it. And I watched it um, about a month ago. And, I mean, Gina Carano, obviously now known for the turn on the Mandalorian and 
being a bit edgy on Twitter. But, you know, back back in 2012, she was just making this transition between being this kind of pre-Ronda Rousey MMA superstar uh, to this action hero. And uh, I'm quite surprised that she hasn't, she, she didn't become a bigger kind of name really based off the back of this film. But have you guys seen it? Have you seen Hey Why? I have. Yeah, I saw it in theaters and really enjoyed it. And it is on our list to cover on this podcast for sure. Oh boy, it's, it's it's just a good film, and and I just think the um, it, it it's just smart. Everything gonna make sense. The world that's created, and I mean, you it's a Steven Soderbergh movie, so it's it's gonna be kind of a cut above the rest. But uh, they that's my pick at the moment. It, it changes quite a lot. Like my favorite Star Trek episode, it, it kind hmm. of fluctuates. But there we go. Haywire for me. Hey, we love deep cuts here. We uh, spend a lot of time trying to find hidden gems and putting them out there as well. So, uh, <laughs> good choice. We we commend you for... Um... Oh, yes. Um, right, well, that leads us on to what we're doing today. And Cam, my question for you is, what film are we covering? We're time-traveling back to the year 2012 for Men in Black 3. <sighs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Telegraphing his uh, his thoughts there, right? Well, let's let's lead in, in with the letterbox.com synopsis. Away we go. Men in Black Three, they are back in time. Agents J and K are back in time. <laughs> God. Keep it going, Scott. Let's keep this train rolling. <laughs> in time. <laughs> okay. Jay has seen some inexplicable things in his 15 years with the men in black, but nothing, not even aliens, perplexes him as much as his wry, reticent partner. But when Kay's life and the fate of the planet are put at stake, Agent Jay will travel back in time to put things right. Jay discovers that there are secrets to the universe that Kay never told him. Secrets that will reveal themselves as he teams up with a young Agent K to save his partner, the agency, and the future of humankind. I could have summed that movie up in about two or three sentences, so this is embarrassing. This is a D. And also, the whole back dot 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 in time is really a ripoff, I don't know, uh, I think uh, you guys might remember, but of Ninja Turtles 3 from 1993, which was The Turtles Are Back in time oh yeah yeah i i did i i thought that it was um i thought it was actually a ripoff of um back to the future for some reason but um i i, I just think it's something the a marketing agency probably thought out and they were like yes check out how clever we are uh, almost almost like the title of this movie which is technically mib cubed um mm. it's, it's very stylized isn't it very much very like alien free um and, and i'm sure someone was sitting around kind of patting themselves on the back going we're geniuses we're really clever and and someone didn't really go what ninja turtles did it in like 92 i i just had huey lewis playing in my head as soon as i read back in time but uh, there you go I, yeah. I also I also did. Yes, I did too. Yes. Um no, um I mean I, I did telegraph this, guys. Sorry, bad poker face. Um yeah, I was saying to you guys off air that uh, I've watched this film twice in my life. Uh in the cinema when it released for the first time. And uh last night <laughs> while I was preparing. And I think that probably tells you all that you need to know, really. I will say this though. Uh that letterbox description, um, sells the movie probably if, if you've not come across men in black before 
and you decide to randomly jump in with part three, I'd probably watch it off that synopsis. See, that I'm on the complete opposite side of that. I, that's gibberish if you don't know who Agents <laughs> J and K are. Yeah. <laughs> what, is this, what, is this, what is this nonsense? It's what, how many lines? It's 12 lines long. <laughs> Get out. Quit your job. Go do something else. I want, to, I want to know more about Agents J and K and the secrets of the universe. I'm in. Well, when they go back in time. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of the mysteries of the universe, I'm just curious, before we dive into three, uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on the first two? Uh, right. Okay. So thanks for asking me this because I, I, I've, like the Bond like the Bond series, I've I've had a bit of a rocky up and down relationship. Now it, appreciate it's condensed into three movies. I've still not actually seen International yet. Um I really liked Men in Black, the first one. Um being a seven year old kid when it came out, it was right up my alley. It was um cartoonish and uh, and absolutely terrifying as well. There are some moments in Men in Black that scared the crap out of me. Like particularly the Salt Alien um not good not good for seven-year-old michael um but i really enjoyed the chemistry between tommy lee jones and will smith obviously as a seven-year-old kid will smith could do absolutely no wrong obviously just coming off of uh, independence day and fresh prince bel-air uh tommy lee jones um 97 wasn't the best year for him was it oh no actually no he was in batman forever not batman and robin um but I i'd obviously seen that a couple of years prior so i was like oh i know who this guy is and um and yeah, I kind of really enjoyed its kind of weird, campy comedy. Uh, although I would say that I think the one issue with with Men in Black is that I don't know if it they really are comedic movies. I think they want to be. Uh, but seven year old Michael found it funny and engaging. Uh, Men in Black Two um, is the I think it's the only movie I've ever gone to the cinema to watch three times. But that's oh, wow. not, yeah, I know, but that's not an indication of its quality. Uh, that was 12-year-old Michael going to the cinema three times with different groups of friends and then with his parents. Um, so it wasn't like, I, I mean, we all have questionable taste. This was 2002, was probably still listening to Limp Biscuit. I still listen to Limp Biscuit now. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I went and watched it three times. And um, again, Rewatched it probably a couple of years ago and, and utterly despised it um, for the for the same reason you guys um, were talking about in in your recent episode where you were just basically like this is the kind of old school cookie cutter take the premise of the first one just basically use that one in the second and add a couple of different things and different scenarios. Um, at least with Men in Black Free they try to do something different. So that kind of I appreciate that. Um, but it still didn't quite work. So you saw it in the cinema as a younger man in 2012. Yes. Uh, obviously, you revisited. Yeah, we'll get to your most recent thoughts in a minute. Cam, did you see Men in Black 3 in the cinema? Yeah, I did. And I mean, as I've said in the past, with the Men in Blacks, they were kind of one and dones for me where I watched the first two and I was like, eh, whatever. So by the time part three rolled around, it had been 10 years since I'd watched a Men in Black film. And I remember going and expecting it to be about on par with the second one and walking out going, yeah, that was okay. And then never thinking about it really <laughs> ever again. See, I know I went to cinema to see it. I just have no memory of doing it. <laughs> you were neuralized. I, they, they literally neuralized you as soon as you walked out the, the, hey, that's, the cinema. That's how they got Michael back in three times for Men in Black. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, no. I mean, neuralized and I was dumb uh, when I, I mean, I was 12. I mean, hormones all over the place. Dumb. Um, but I made up for it because the very same year I went and watched uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man like four times. And so it's 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 not my most watched movie in, in the cinema. So I, at least I have that. Thanks, nice. Sam Raimi. Well, Cam, there's a big gap between these two films, Men in Black 2 and 3. So what happened? Okay, so the whole genesis of Men in Black 3 is kind of weird. Um, Will Smith had pitched a version of Men in Black 3 to Barry Sonnenfeld on the set of 2. And 2, as you may recall from that episode of the podcast, was a disaster production. And Barry Sonnenfeld was like, look, can we just finish part 2? I don't really care about part (laughs) 3. And so basically they finished 2. It was a real headache for everyone involved. In between, there was a lawsuit um, after Men in Black 2. Barry Sonnenfeld sued um, Sony over profits from the first two movies. So there was kind of bad blood going on. And it just felt like this was a franchise that no one had any creative spark for anymore, especially after the second one, which, as we said, was kind of just a replica of the first. Um, it, it, things took a turn for the kind of weird where producer Walter Parks um, was on vacation in Southeast Asia in 2009. And he saw some locals watching the original on TV. And he suddenly realized Men in Black mattered and they needed to come back. And uh, <laughs> around the same time, Will Smith was concurrently developing a time travel movie. And so it kind of was rolling from there. They decided to develop this. And they brought in writer uh, Aiton Cohen, who at the time had written um, Tropic Thunder and Madagascar Escape to Africa. Um, he was a comedy guy. He had a background writing for Beavis and Butthead and also King of the Hill with Mike Judge. Um, he worked on a number of Mike Judge projects, including Idiocracy as well. And so he was kind of the hot talent coming off of Tropic Thunder. And so they were like, get this guy in. And um, he came in. And basically, no one could really agree what this movie was going to be. Um, they couldn't even agree on a director. Will Smith, who had far more power at this point in his life, he was very much running the show on this one. And him and the execs were leery about bringing Barry Sonnenfeld back to direct because of Men in Black 2. And also, obviously, there was issues, obviously, with the lawsuits and all that and bad blood. So they were looking at other directors. Michael Bay was considered because he had worked with Smith on um, Bad Boys 2. I'm just curious. How do you guys feel about Michael Bay, Men in Black 3? (laughs) Um, It probably would have been more exciting. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) More, more, more explosions, probably. Um, no, I, I did. I, I'll, I'll. No, I, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't get Michael Bay near, near this. To be fair, the movie would have been two and a half hours long, at least. <laughs> that was going to be my line. It just would have been a lot longer. Yeah. So basically, Barry Sonnenfeld really wanted to come back, and so he approached Sony and the producers and Smith, and um, basically gave a pitch for Men in Black Three of what he thought it should be. And they really liked his pitch, and they said, you know what? This guy has the most vision for this. Let's let's get together with him again. And Barry Sonnenfeld, at this point, hadn't, hadn't directed a major motion picture since 2006 when he did the Robin Williams movie, RV, which was kind of like oh, a... Oh, no. Why did you remind yeah. me of Oh, no. Yeah, it was kind of like a decent box office performer that was like a terrible movie had like i'm sure the you know rotten tomatoes meter is like 10 percent or something like that like it was a very bad movie so barry sonnenfeld was on shaky footing but they decided to bring him back in so on april 1st 2009 they formally announced men in black 3 
um, alongside two other major projects, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 4 and Ghostbusters 3 with the original cast. <laughs> well, that, that, that all works out well, didn't it? Of all the films that had to happen out of those three, we ended up with <laughs> Men in Black 3. What a joke. What an absolute I, I, joke. I do want to say as well, because you mentioned it with, um, with Ethan Cohen. Um, now, when this film came out, I was getting into the point. I was, so I had a film blog in uh in 2000 and well, i'd started it in 2010 and it ran until 2014 uh and i do think that men in black 3 was the beginning of the end probably um but men in black 3 was probably also the beginning of the end for eaton cohen um you, you mentioned that he'd uh co-written idiocracy tropic thunder i think he did a madagascar movie as well yeah. um but this was the first time he'd ever done a solo ride and yeah. uh this film war this film ruined his career like this, this, what? this kind of really revealed him to be not. I mean, because you know, obviously, Tropic Thunder was absolutely hilarious. Uh, Idiocracy is genius. Uh, Madagascar is also a film, and um, so he had a bit of clout. And if you look at the films that came after this, uh, Holmes and Watson, which was, I think, I think he directed it as well. Uh, have you guys seen that film? I haven't. The reviews were so abysmal that I just was like, I can't sit through a like bad Will Ferrell comedy. It's so bad. It's so so bad. Um, but but yeah, it's um, I, I this film kind of revealed a lot of kind of weaknesses in some of the people that were making it. I mean, Barry Sonnenfeld had also. I mean, I'm of the opinion that Barry Sonnenfeld, you know, Men in Black, the first one, decent. Uh, Adam's Family you know, kind of cut his teeth making those films. You know, the first one particularly is quite memorable. Um, I will say this. <laughs> Again, young Michael, young Agent M. I really enjoyed Wild Wild West. Not now. Oh, okay. Not now. Yeah. Nine-year-old Michael dug that film. I think it's probably the cyberpunk elements um, and, you know, the song Wild Wild West. Um, but but now, no, I, I don't think I've revisited it in a number of years. But um, I feel like this film, Men in Black 3, was kind of like a nail in the final nail in the coffin of a number of the creatives that created it. Yeah, Barry Sonnenfeld would really only direct one major movie between that movie and now, which was Nine Lives, the um, cat comedy. Oh, no, I, I, I haven't seen it. But uh, like you with Holmes and Watson, uh, didn't watch it because of because of the word of mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like kind of a dumped per, uh, movie in theaters and I, it just kind of came and went and no one has ever spoken of it since, except for now. Did he not direct um, um, Men in Black International? He did not, no. Ooh, no. who did? Yeah. Oh, it's um, F. Gary Gray. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so this movie was rushed into production in fall 2010. Um, without a finished script, they didn't even have a satisfactory second or third act. No one could agree on what the second or third act would even be. And so they set up the shoot in an interesting way, in two blocks. Um, before the Christmas break, they were going to shoot all the modern day stuff in New York between Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And then they were going to take a two-week Christmas break and then shoot all of the 1969 stuff in the new year. Um, that didn't really work out quite as they planned. They ended up, instead of a two-week break, taking a three-month break. Um, so multiple writers could come in to rework the historical scenes in 1969. Oh, no. um, among those people that came in, Spielberg people, because Spielberg is back mm. as a producer here. He was off for two, but he came back for three. So he brought in David Kep, who had written Spider-Man. Um, he'd also written Jurassic Park. He's written a lot of mm. Spielberg productions. 
He also brought in Jeff Nathanson, who's written The Terminal and Catch Me If You Can for Spielberg, as well as more recently, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. So this three-month shutdown went from Christmas to March, and um, it was a, a very fraught with tension set, and they ultimately cobbled something together that Sony was confident in. Apparently, there was a, I mean, there was a lot of bad press at the time, but Sony was like pretty confident in the brand. I don't know that they were as confident with part two. Um, a couple other things to note, just in terms of the casting. Um, Rip Torn had been charged with breaking, entering, and other offenses in 2010. So he was out of the picture, which is why they um, kill off his character at the start of the movie. Um, and then also, Gemma Arterton was cast as the younger version of Agent O. And of course, she is probably best known to people from uh, Strawberry Fields um, in um, Quantum of Solace, you know, for spy fans out there. She had to leave due to scheduling difficulties, so Alice Eve was brought in. So does anyone have any thoughts on a Gemma Arterton versus um, Alice Eve for Agent O? It's such mm. a blank performance that I, I don't know what she could have brought to it, really. There's nothing there. It's it's very much a nothing kind of role, isn't it? Um, I, uh, I, I mean, when... When you see her on screen for the first time, and obviously it's been a long time since I watched it for the first time, uh, you know, I kind of sat up and did the whole, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio point at the TV thing. I was like, oh, it's her. Um, yeah, she just doesn't really get a lot to do, does she? Really, it's it's a very uh, it's a very nothing performance. Not, you know, obviously not Alice E's fault. Uh, I think she's a fine actor, but uh, you know, you can only do so much with what you're given, and she wasn't really given a whole lot apart from kind of looking fondly in the direction of josh brolin i'm i'm fascinated to just just take a beat and just think that they announced this film in april of 2009 and they didn't start shooting until fall of 2010 and by that point they had a first act (laughs) i would just say that i mean will smith has a lot of power i know he also has his own team of writers he brings into projects i just think there was probably a ton of conflict going on as to what this movie was even about and especially, I'll bet you they had a lot of like, you know, cold sweat going on because of the second one. It's really strange because you have all of these creatives, um, you know, working together or working against each other to create this film. Um, you know, and, and you said that the set was kind of fraught with tension and it was a very difficult production, very much like the second one. Um, I will say... I, from my perspective, I didn't really see that in the finished product. You know, sometimes when there's a movie where the production is just a disaster and it's you know chaos on the bridge, um, didn't really get that. I, I I thought what we got was you know for for the most part a fairly solid production. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm talking in just terms of how it looks and the performances on screen, um, but the the one thing about the film is that despite all of these people working on it. There's not really a whole lot to it. It's kind of an no. empty film, really. It is, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, this 105-minute comedy, which feels very fast and loose, cost $225 million. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. How did this... This is the most expensive comedy ever made, still to this day. How? Like... It's because of that three-month shutdown. They were paying the entire crew for three months. Oh, my goodness. This film cost $200 million. 225, 225 Scott. Yeah. What, what, what universe is this? Where am I? <laughs> Honestly, right, I have not... Because, I mean, Men in Black 1 had a budget of about, what, $80 million? And, yeah. Right, and, and looks better than this. 
you know, the, the, the one thing that I kept thinking as I was watching it was, wow, some of these shots are really like just redundant and pointless and you don't need them in. There's so many like, uh, you know, you know, the scene on the on the Chrysler building. Like yeah, there's yeah. so many kind of so many dramatic kind of pan ups and um, kind of spinaways showing the building. You you didn't need that. There's one shot which is like this real hyper zoom in on Boris, and it's like you you didn't need that. But there's so many uh, the moment when they're pulling up at the baseball stadium, which is this kind of dramatic uh, zoom in uh, showing the baseball stadium. It's so obviously CGI. I mean, when you're spending two hundred and twenty five million dollars on a film, I mean, look at some. I mean, Avatar two thousand and uh, two thousand and nine, right? I, I, yeah. I'm sure it probably cost a whole lot, but it looks amazing still to this day. This does not look good. It doesn't look no. good. No. So, yeah, um, 225 before advertising. After that, it's like $400 million. Um, <laughs> But uh, d- domestically, it made $179 million. International, oh. $445 oh. for a worldwide total of 624 for comparison's sake. Um, that's $624 million for part three versus... 589 for the first and 445 for the second. So this is to date the highest grossing men in black film. But but that margin is uh, is very small, isn't it? And, you know, I, I guess, you know, when you when you chuck on the marketing budget on top, um, I would assume I would assume quite safely that the studio is probably quite disappointed with the performance of this. I would think so. And I think because it was so expensive, there's a reason we didn't get a men in black four with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones and all that. Um, but this movie fell at number 10 for the year at the worldwide box office between the Hunger Games and Ang Lee's Life of Pi. Um, you know, the top three of that year, uh, it's like three heavy hitters. You have number one, you have the Avengers. Number two, you have Skyfall. And number three, you have the Dark Knight Rises. So Men in Black 3, it's interesting because it is kind of this relic of, you know, the late 90s, this franchise. And now it's going up against the biggest franchises of the modern day, you know, the Daniel Craig Bonds, the Marvel stuff, the DC stuff, and it just can't compete. Yeah, I, it felt very much... I mean, the way this film also is presented as well it's in its construction, in the way you know, kind of progresses is it has an old school feel to it. it it's it's like watching a 90s movie whereas if you you know i i know the the dark knight rises isn't you know it's it's not the best of the of the batman trilogy but i mean if you if you put these two films next to each other and you watch them uh you know back to back you would be forgiven for mis- for thinking that men in black 3 was filmed in a in a different decade Oh, totally. I agree. Um, some other notable spy movies this year that came out that all fell below Men in Black um, on the list. But at number 29, you had The Bourne Legacy. Number mm-hmm. 38, the Denzel Washington film Safe House. At number 40, the um, Total Recall remake. At number 50, This Means War, the Tom Hardy recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Chris Pine comedy. And at number 56, Zero Dark Thirty, the Catherine Bigelow drama with Jessica Chastain. Um, And I'll just also mention, just as a little um, side note here, big year for Tommy Lee Jones. He also had at number 30, Lincoln, the Steven Spielberg film. And at number 66, um, the um, I think it's a comedy with Meryl Streep called Hope Springs. So Tommy Lee was still uh, bringing the thunder in 2012. Well, I think that about wraps up how the film came to be so let's get into the meat of it uh michael as you are our guest let us know what you think about the film now you've gone back and visited it again in 2020 yeah so oh 
guys, 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 guys. The thing is, right, this, I, I, I'm not going to say that this film is uh, abjectly terrible. I don't think it's a terrible film. I think if, if you're going to take your kids to see some sort of, you know, sci-fi comedy thing you know I, I think the humor in it's fairly safe it's it's a will smith movie so um it's it's fairly safe um yeah it's uh <laughs> it's it's it you know what I'm, it's hard it's hard the one thing for me is and i kind of alluded to it earlier is i for a comedy um did anybody laugh at men in black free um Maybe once. One scene. Which scene? It was when uh, Agent J was talking to Agent K, old version, in the Chinese restaurant. And he made the joke about... um, (laughs) He made the joke about how he played catch with his dad, but uh, it was just up against the wall because his dad was never there. Oh, Um, right. right. I laughed. um, I laughed when Josh Brolin did the, all right, and he said it just like Tommy Lee Jones. I was like, oh, that's really good. That made me laugh. Yeah, so I mean, that that probably made me chuckle. Um, I didn't chuckle at it second time round. But if I was watching it first time, I probably would have been like, ha! Because Josh Brolin like, just nails Agent K. Like, nails Tommy Lee Jones. Um, uh, and, and it's probably the best thing about this film. I mean, incredible casting. Um, you know, we, we'd already seen Josh Berlin in a whole load of things. I mean, he was kind of in that stage where he was really kind of coming into his own as a, as an actual serious actor and had kind of shed the Goonies vibe, uh, you know, uh, many years ago, I remember seeing him in, um, Ridley Scott's, uh, American Gangster. And I just thought he was mm-hmm. fantastic in that. And he's also in, um, uh, Planet Terror as well as, uh, Dr. Block. Um, so he was really coming into his own and, and to see him be cast in this, I was like, oh, it'd be interesting. See, saw the trailers and I was like, wow, he really, really looks the part. Um, a huge highlight of the film for me. But no, I didn't laugh at this at all. I didn't find a lot of it funny at all. And, um, you know, I know that humor ages and people's, you know, what people, comedy is subjective, isn't it? But nothing really got me with this film, which is kind of, you know, it's, it's Will Smith. Will Smith's supposed to, be funny right that's kind of what made him famous uh you know highlights of uh so many hollywood blockbusters in the mid 90s um even having jermaine clement from um uh, flight, flight of the concord yeah um you know you you kind of think well he's gonna be a funny villain no i mean even having people like will arnett and uh, bill hader you're like no it just didn't really do anything for me so it was quite disappointing but then i was thinking to myself last night i was like you know, did uh, did did the first two films were the were the first two films funny? And I can't remember um, being particularly you know howling at anything in those two movies either. Um, but but for me, I think the whole I, I think it's a very much kind of let's just finish the trilogy kind of feel to this. Um, and there are some things that work. There are I, I am I'm going to try and praise it uh, to some degree. Um, but for, for the most part, it's um, a bit of a damp squib. Well, um, what, what about you then, Cam? What did you think? Obviously, you saw it in cinema. You were a bit meh to it, but you've come back now refreshed. Sure. <laughs> meh. <laughs> um, I'm kind of in the same place as Mike, where I sat down and watched it last night, and it was not one that I was, like, raring to go. A lot of the movies we cover on this podcast, I'm really excited to watch, either because I haven't seen them or because I think they're going to really offer something 
really interesting to revisit. Whereas this one, I was like, okay, like this one, Men in Black 2, I'd almost completely forgotten. Whereas this one was at least, you know, while I hadn't thought about it, I remembered the basic layout of the plot and everything. So I'm like, okay, so I'm going in for no surprises. Oh boy, here we go. But ultimately I came away maybe slightly more positive than I did the first time where I came to appreciate more just the chemistry that um, Will Smith has with Josh Brolin. Um, you know, the time travel stuff is fun. There's some invention going on there that we can talk about a little bit later. Um, it just kind of has an energy about it. And it has a, a return to more of the emotion that the first one had that I appreciated. So when it was all said and done, I went, yeah, this was a totally fine, like B minus kind of three star movie that I could totally sit through, enjoy most of the chemistry and some of the fun effects or whatever. But it's it's really kind of a vapor of a movie in that I know if you ask me like a year from now, any sort of specific details about this movie, they'll be gone. Mm. Mm. It's, it's like the equivalent of a Big Mac, you know, right. you kind of, it's going to take up some of your time. There's going to be some stuff in there you enjoy, but ultimately at the end, it's just, it's just not gonna, it's not long for the memory. I will say though, guys, that, that there is one, I'm sure we're going to get to it in more detail, but there's one thing in this film that did have me sitting up and, and taking notice. And one thing that I really think saved this film for me from being totally not worth my time. Okay. Um, you say Big Mac. I say Big Willie style Mac. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just get my two cents out about this film before we move on to any specific part of the film, because I am chomping at the bit to send a bit of praise its way. We've been quite down on this film, and I actually came out of rewatching this. With, I really enjoyed it. I'm not saying it's the best film I've ever seen, but, you know... No, least... that's, that's exactly what you're saying right now, Scott. Yeah. You, are, you are saying it's the greatest film you've ever seen. Yeah, it's not it. I, that's it. Men in Black are <laughs> coming soon. It's just me. It's just me. Um, no, I, I felt like it was charming. It was trying to do something original. And I, when I when I started this film up, I was really worried because the first thing I saw was Nicole Scherzinger. And I thought, oh, no, there's never been a good film with Nicole Scherzinger in it. <laughs> this, is, this isn't going into good territory. And then, you, you, you know, you get uh, Boris the Animal, you know, mm. on the moon, he's shouting exposition at the screen to you. And it pans back and you get this horrible, like, word art from Windows 95 text come through. And I was like, what is this cheap ass like graphic they're showing on the screen? But after that, it was all on the up for me. Okay, well, I will defend Nicole Scherzinger for one thing. I think she's in Moana, and Moana's good. So <laughs> it's not all a lost redeemed, cause. Redeemed for sure, Nicole Scherzinger. Uh, yeah, redeemed <laughs> for that. Um, Moana is fantastic. Um, okay. I actually didn't... I, I was... Because... I had to do a double take because she looks a lot different in this film than she usually does. I mean, she usually has um, kind of more volume in her hair, whereas this is all strictly tied back and she's kind of going with that uh, BDSM. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys noticed, it's hard not to, but massive tit close-ups uh, as the film begins. Uh, Got to titillate those teenagers. Um... Where's my Burger King? <laughs> Yeah, it does feel like it's interesting because this movie is shot um, at a time where it feels like the modern era, right? Like it's 2012. It's not that long ago, but it was interesting 
director's choices involving, yeah, Nicole there, but some of the other jokes in the movie that I went, whoa, like it's been eight years, but this movie feels kind of outdated in a lot of ways. Massively, massively. I mean, I'm sure there's some stuff that you could chalk down to the, the 1969 setting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's still kind of, it was still kind of jarring to see some of these shot selections and some of these lines in the film. Um, for sure. I, I want to talk about quickly the, the time travel element, because I mean, that's kind of why I'm here, right? As the sci-fi guy. But, um, other than the jump, the time jump, which I did think was quite inventive. I think it's one of the highlights of the movie, particularly the first jump. And, uh, it didn't get a laugh out of me, but it definitely got a, <laughs> uh, from, from the sounds that Will Smith's making as he's kind of like screaming and it's all distorted. Um, but the time travel element for me kind of left me a bit cold because they don't really do much with it, with the exception of, hey, look at these famous people like Andy Warhol. And, you know, the production design is good. The set design and, and the old cars and costumes, it's all good. And, um, but they didn't really utilize this. They didn't utilize it for laughs. They didn't, you know, if I was to you know, be constructive for a second. If I was to go and write this film, you know, I would have, given what, what happens at the end, I would have Agent J accidentally setting things in motion that essentially, you know, so so accidentally invent, inventing Velcro, for example, you know, just, hmm. just by like, you know, leaving, you know, leaving a napkin on the floor and someone goes, hey, that would, you know, I'm talking crap here, but, you know, accidentally, you know, being responsible for minor things in history, things that don't really matter. And then obviously what happens at the end is the thing that matters is the big thing. So you could have played, you could have played the time travel aspect for laughs a little bit more than I think we got here. And I think the time travel stuff was, I know, I know time travel has been done to death and it's, it's always hard to kind of, you know, invent new wrinkles in time. See what I did there. Um, but I don't know. It, it just, the time travel stuff in this is disappointing. Michael, what film were you watching? Honestly, like it was charming. They had all these like retro gadgets. The the MIB bureau was all like old school. The aliens were sixties aliens, akin to the old type of Star Trek stuff or the old sort of fifties sci fi films. I thought they did a lot of work with the uh, the time travel. Uh, I mean, I, I did I did notice a very uh, Talosian looking alien in the background in one scene. I was like, eh, that's cool. Uh, just I, I just think, you know, you, you get a lot of nods to 1969, you know, the fashion, the Vogue and all that kind of stuff. And yes, the aliens are fitting fitting that kind of retro aesthetic, but using time travel. They didn't. They didn't really utilize time travel as well as I think they could have for for a zany uh, sci-fi action comedy. I think coming away from Men in Black Two, my reaction to that film was shrug emoji. Um, this at least felt like it was trying to do something, and that I appreciated. I think we have to differentiate though between when we're talking about the time travel element. Um, the mechanics of it versus more of the set dressing, because like I'm a hundred percent in favor of the set dressing of it. Like I think they have a ton of fun mm. with the sequences where Will Smith is going back in time and plummeting. And we go through like dinosaur periods. Mm. We see the great depression of people jumping off the Chrysler building, like stuff like that. Very creative and fun. But if we're talking about the actual mechanics of time travel, which we've seen in so many movies, I mean, so many famous movies, you know, we've referenced Back to the Future, but the Terminator franchise, mm. you know, time travel is a very popular go-to. 
I do think when we talk about the actual mechanics of how time travel is used in this movie, it's very superficial, which I mean, it's kind of a light and goofy movie, so I don't necessarily fault it for that. But if you are looking for like a really fun and consistent time travel premise up for this movie, I do think it comes up wanting. Yeah, and I guess to to try and um, to add to what I was saying and, and doing it in a way that makes me come across as somewhat educated, uh, so I'll, I'll do my best here, um, is I never really got the impression that Jay um, was helping create the K that we all know and love because K was already K when Jay met him. Wow, that's kind of weird saying it like that. Um, <laughs> and I, I felt that Jay didn't really leave as much of an imprint on 1969 as I was hoping for. Uh, you know, when you've got Will Smith kind of running around 1969 New York, you would expect some hijinks, but I never really felt that we got that. Well, it's like you can feel the elements being pasted together. And as we, you know, said, there was a lot of problems behind the scenes. You know, you think of Jay's exit from 1969 at the end of the movie. He just basically says to like, Kay, like, well, see you later. Yeah. And he takes off and then does see a, you know, a key moment in his life. But you don't have a sense of his lingering presence there because it's like, I got to get back to the other movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there was much of an arc to his time travel journey the whole father revelation at the end really didn't do anything for me oh <laughs> well that's again scott this is this is where you and i differ i mean we're gonna fight after this oh. um the 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 time trap the, the revelation the father revelation was that thing that i was alluding to earlier i think the uh even watching it the second time around the first time i watched it um uh, had me quite stunned it was it was an unexpected emotional wave that just smashed into my face um and uh and i really really loved it and for me that really kind of lifted up the film for me watching it last night um i kind of got the same kind of vibe from it um really unexpected really it's like whoever wrote that sequence um it's a home run uh it's a slam dunk it's really good and um for for me is 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 the most memorable aspect of the film I think just the concept of Tommy Lee Jones comforting a young Jay um, after his father's killed is on paper kind of a bad idea. It makes the universe feel small Mm. uh, in a way that I don't like where they're basically just trying to cram this stuff together to give it all a loop of see here, see how, you know, this all works through this franchise where it's a franchise that I think is very low on sort of (laughs) it basically um storytelling going from movie to movie it doesn't feel like a particularly serialized or rich uh world in that Mm, way yeah um but i can appreciate that they want to do that the reason i think this element works and it worked for me emotionally as well um is josh brolin josh brolin comforting this kid and going through this experience of seeing jay a very young jay not aware of what's happened to his father and him having to kind of mentor him through this moment uh, I think Josh Brolin, they don't give out Oscars to movies like Men in Black 3, but this feels like the type of performance in a moment that I wrote in my notes is very sweaty. Like it is so sweaty trying to create an emotional moment. And I feel like Josh Brolin almost single-handedly makes this moment impactful. Yeah, and, and it's um, it's subtle acting as well. Um, another, another thing that made me love uh, Josh Brolin's performance in this, I mean, again, and just nailing the mannerisms of Tommy Lee Jones, is it's just the simple kind of a raise of a brow here and there, just these really subtle kind of uh, 
little tiny winks and kinks. Um, but when he pulls out the neuralizer, you know, and, and then does, you know, does in, you know, young Jay. Um, yeah, it got me. It got me. It was, um, I just, I just thought it was a really good um, sequence. And uh, kind of when I was watching it for the first time, I think I was like, ah, this is, this is, this is why I come and watch movies. And it, and it reminded me, I mean, it just, for some reason, I don't know if you guys got this as well. It just kind of felt very Star Trekky for me in terms of like a, something Star Trek would do. Okay. I'm glad you said that. And we're going to spiral off ever so slightly because as I was watching this film, I noticed a lot of Star Trek references. <laughs> and so I kept a list. Okay. So I have six good ones. Okay. So what I've done, a little game for you folks. I call it Trek Connect. I'm going to give you a clue and you can see if you can connect it to Men in Black 3. Okay. All right. It's just first come, first serve. I'll throw it out there. So clue number one is the episode of the original series, The Way to Eden. Space hippies? <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Well, it was hippies, basically. And also just... Like, yeah, alien, alien. alien hippies, right? Yeah, in the 60s, aliens. So that was the first cool thing. Second one was First Contact, the film. Hmm. Well, just the whole premise, the going back in time to prevent uh, something from happening, a cat- catastrophe? Correct. Number three, the Icarus factor from The Next Generation. Daddy issues? Uh, Bingo! <laughs> <laughs> Number four... Space burials? Uh, space burials. I'll give you a hint. Oh, Amazing Grace on the on the bagpipes, yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, hey, look, the worms were milked like crazy in Men in Black 2. I'll take an Amazing Grace number from them if that's all I have to do. I was with. so glad you didn't see any more of them in this film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Okay, one more and we'll be done. And I'll explain why the other one doesn't make sense afterwards. Okay. David Marcus. Uh, well, okay, so David Marcus is Kirk's son. He doesn't know is his son in Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Um, Some revelation. And the, yeah. Oh, um, you're missing it. You're then, missing it. It's uh, not Kirk. Is it the hair? David I, Marcus's amazing hair? David Marcus know. is the son of Carol Marcus, and Carol Marcus oh. is played by Alice Eve. Oh, okay, okay. I feel like that one's a real stretch because <laughs> Carol Marcus didn't play her until like what three decades after the original actress played that character. Yeah, it is true. And the last one I had, um, I'm not sure if it'll actually make the episode, but I found out that the film I thought came out the same year didn't come out the same year. So, mm. Mm. well, Bill Hader. Um, who is in this is Andy Warhol and Agent W. He was uh, the Vengeance computer in oh. uh, in Into Darkness. Oh um, yeah, that's another one. Yeah, and, um, and and here's a proper deep cut for you guys. Um, because I mean the track lads here, so it has to be done right. Um, but uh, Mr. Wu, um, also played uh, the greatest baseball player of all time, Buck Bakai, in uh, Deep Space Nine, and he was in Enterprise as Hoshi's dad. Oh, boom. That's good. That's really good. That's a deep um, But uh, that Wu scene, um, uh, Kian Yong uh, plays that character. Um, that sequence is, uh, that does not work nowadays. <laughs> no, no, it does really not. And, and, and that's, that's a thing as well. I mean, Men in Black has always portrayed um, kind of minorities as aliens. And I don't know 
it, it's not it's not aged well. It's really not. Yeah, especially when he's putting on the like stereotypical accent and everything. It's like, oh my <sighs> god. Yeah, and I really thought in 2012 that we were getting away from this, but uh, nope, apparently not. I, I I do have a question for you guys though. How do you guys feel about Men in Black as these authority figures? I feel like they're kind of fun in the first movie and what have you, and maybe even a little bit in the second. Um, but like here, a lot of what the Men in Black do is like show up and shoot people or beat them up, and that happens a lot. There's a lot of strong arming going on. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who who wants them around? Like, they seem a little bit oppressive, actually, now you put it that way. Like, you think about the first movie, right? And there's those, you know, illegal aliens, quote-unquote, crossing the border from Mexico. And, like, Tommy Lee Jones basically sends them all, you know, into the U.S. and is like, don't worry, we're not going to be, you know, bothering you. And then, like, um, you know, you have moments where Tommy Lee Jones is talking to Will Smith. But like, Look, they just want to live their lives. They're just want, you know, families and, you know, jobs just like the rest of us. And then you like cut to this movie where every time they're showing up to deal with aliens, they're either like just, well, they're always attacking them in some way or just like, you know, interrogating them like really brutally. It's really weird. Maybe, guys, maybe the men in black are uh, a secret. Uh, maybe they're Section 31. Mm, maybe. 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 violence. Yeah, I mean, and there's no real diplomacy arm, is there, of the organization? So um, let's just go with that. I buy it. Yeah. I buy it. <laughs> sure. Before sure. we move on from that scene with Mr. Wu, I have one question that I wrote down in my notes. What does K say to Mr. Wu? Uh, I don't really know. It, I didn't really pick up on. He says something like, "You're a piece of something." Oh. Yeah. And I was like, they're not saying the S word, surely. This is like a, I don't know, twelve A film. Maybe it's um maybe it's like Battlestar Galactica and, and their use of like frack. Maybe it's that alien's equivalent of, you know, this, that swear. Maybe it it just seemed like an odd choice. It seemed like it was really offensive, and I just thought it just took me out of the scene for that moment. But oh well. Mm. Um, mm. Well, let's let's move on to the performances of the individuals. Um, obviously, a lot of people have come back for this one, and some new new people have appeared for the first time. Now, Will Smith is back as Agent J. How do you think he has fared in his uh, reprisal of the role? Um, I mean, this was this was a difficult time for Will Smith, wasn't it? Um, and uh, an interesting factoid: uh, I have never watched After Earth, and uh, hmm. I, I I intend never. I, I hopefully will go my entire life without seeing it, based off what I've heard. Uh, but yeah, he was he was struggling at this point, um, not really hitting the heights of you know the early noughties and the mid nineties. Um, it's fine. It's fine. It just kind of lacks the same energy that he brought in some of his earlier roles. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, you guys mentioned it in your last uh, in your Men in Black Two uh, podcast. Is that he kind of it doesn't work really in this role? Um, and I think that that's probably more of the same here. I kind of enjoyed him in this movie, but it is. It's interesting when you um, look at Men in Black 2, a lot of the criticisms around why that movie didn't work was they made him too much of a straight man. Mm. Whereas like here, I'm like, I don't know. Does he feel like he's not a straight man now? He does get some wacky jokes and stuff, but a lot of the movie is him playing or trying to play in some ways almost more of the mentor now to a young K. And it's not like he's like cutting loose and being really wacky throughout the movie. 
Um, but I thought he was a decent grounding force for the movie. It's just that when this movie's over, my takeaway is that like Josh Brolin's amazing and Will Smith is there. Will Smith's good in some scenes. I, I did like the moment, you know, where he's pulled over by the cops. This movie doesn't completely sidestep the fact, you know, he's a black man walking around in 1969. Like they do tackle that in some scenes that I thought were admirable to put into a very light, goofy comedy. Like they didn't completely, you know, uh, just shuttle it aside. But um, I thought Will Smith was really good in some of the scenes there, but also just, you know, emotional moments. I bought him. It's just like, is this a fun character still? I don't really know. I remember that scene of him being pulled over being in all of the trailers. Oh, really? I, mm. Interesting. Yeah. That was like the big thing was, oh, you know, there's a black man in 1969. Joke, joke, joke. Um, and I, I think that was probably his best attempt at trying to address that issue in the film. Yeah, there's the one in the elevator as well, which is more subtle, but that's that's kind of about it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he was still trying in this film. Yeah, I mean, he threw his back into Men in Black 2, as we discussed, and probably his back out. But <laughs> at least in this one, I think he was still trying to get the character over. You could tell he was, uh, you can tell he was actually wanting to do it. Yeah, it does feel like someone who's engaged. And plus, he had a massive amount of clout in this movie. So, um, you know, as, as someone who obviously has a lot of stake in the game on this one, I do think... He was really pushing this one forward a lot. Yeah. I, and you I, feel like he's invested. I, I've never got the impression from Will Smith that he's kind of done the whole Bruce Willis checkout. He's never done that. Um, you know, even in the films that I've seen him in, I mean, I saw him um, in Bad Boys 3 earlier on this year. And um, he has, you know, he still has it. He still has some zip. Um, he, I would say, even despite his flops, I think he's still very much a bankable talent. Um, and I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't dislike him in this. It just, I think it's probably the film as a whole didn't do much for me. Um, but you know, when you look at the Will Smith from the, the mid nineties, and I don't know if this is just me being unfair, having this expectation of energy, but, uh, the Will Smith of the mid nineties, um, you know, isn't, isn't so apparent anymore, but maybe that's just an age thing. I would have thought that's more the age of the character at this point and him being a little bit more seasoned, which I, I do buy. I kind of do, but they also try to make him kind of youthful. Like they'll have him sitting there playing like um, PlayStation. Xbox? Uh, I think or PlayStation. Yeah, one yeah. Of those two. Oh, it's a, it's a Sony movie. It's got to be PlayStation. Of course it's PlayStation. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but it's like, how old is this character supposed to be? <laughs> well, that, that's another that's another interesting thing because do they ever explain how much time has passed between movies one, two, and three? Because I, I was sat there thinking about this last night. Is it is it maybe a year or two? Or is it truly mm -hmm. real-time progression? I like to read the time length between films by the wrinkles on Tommy Lee Jones' face. <laughs> oh, okay. Like a tree. Basically, you are cutting the tree in half and counting the rings right now. Okay. Exactly. Let's go for exactly. it. Exactly. And at this point, he is effing old. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was really unfortunate they dyed his hair. Yeah. So I'm like, oh my god. It's always really weird when you see an older actor, like someone who's very visibly old, like 70s, 80s, but they dye their hair dark, and you're like, no one looks like this in the real world. And that's what they were doing to Tommy Lee Jones here. It's like, people, just embrace the fact the man has gray hair. I Did you, I mean, one thing that we've not talked about is, um, did you guys find it kind of weird that... I mean, Tommy Lee Jones isn't really in this film. 
Yeah. Well, there's a reason he was able to like film like three other movies this year. Um, <laughs> it's, I don't know, like, I think this was probably for the smarter move because I think Josh Brolin will agree is the lightning rod that brings life to this movie. Maybe there was just nothing really left for Tommy Lee Jones to do with this character. I enjoy him in his scenes here, but it also feels like very much bookend material. Yeah. It's not like Tommy Lee Jones was given a lot to invest his time in here. But it's interesting because he does get, he still gets top billing. I mean, it's him, Will Smith. I mean, they get co, co-star credits basically. Um, but I'd be interested to know exactly how many minutes he's, he's in it for. And I, I appreciate that the story uh, is intentionally taking him out to replace him with the younger uh, Kay. Um, but to still get top billing? Wow. Yeah, because they go back in time at the 32 minute mark. Um, and then there's like, what, maybe like five minutes at the end or yeah. something in the diner with Tommy Lee Jones. So if you factor that, all he does in this film is eat pie. That's it. Yeah. So he's probably like on screen for what, maybe 20 minutes. Mm. It's like Anthony uh, Hopkins, like Hannibal Lecter level. Yeah. Minus the awards. I just feel like he probably only agreed to show up if this was the idea. I don't think he wanted to do another whole Men in Black film with him running around in a black suit shooting aliens. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's for the better. I think the story they came up with for Men in Black 3 is the better choice. I mean, is there more to do with just like a, you know, alien has come to Earth and K and J have to go investigate it? Like, I don't know. I feel like those jokes were kind of milked by the time you got to the second one. We already had Will Smith reversing it where he's kind of mentoring the older Tommy Lee Jones in the second one. Like, what do you do with that dynamic at this point? I just, it was also kind of a case of, I thought a lot, and another Trek link for you there, I thought a lot about Star Trek 2009. Hmm. You've got Leonard Nimoy reprising the role of Spock, and you've also got Zachary Quinto taking up the mantle of Spock for the first time, and that sort of passing the baton. I, I wonder if that was a, a thought process they went through. I remember seeing this movie... And being certain that Josh Brolin would be taking over the franchise going forward. Yeah. I, I would go see Men in Black 4 if it was set in the, I don't know, 1970s. Sure. Yeah, why not? We could work in the whole, like, Nixon era. Why not? There could be something fun there. Yeah. I don't see, like, I mean, I think if... It's weird to me that they've always struggled, it seems, with these Men in Black movies to come up with workable plots. It's kind of like... I always was baffled by the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, where it's like... It seems like it should be really fun, episodic, like Indiana Jones style pirate adventures. Like, why are they all these two and a half hour convoluted messes of continuity? But like, I look at Men in Black movies and I'm like, this should be really simple. You just come up with really fun new cases, what that these agents have to solve. I'm sure there's probably fodder in the comic book series that it was based on. You know, obviously it was an edgy comic book series, so you're not going to take it you know, one-to-one comparison, but you could easily adapt it into fun stories. Why is it that they seem to struggle so, so much to come up with a workable Men in Black story? So it's interesting that you raise this because the whole, I mean, I've, I've never read the comics before, but I'm aware that they exist and I'm aware that it was always a far darker, more serious take. And they kind of added the com, you know, the comedic elements to, to suit Will Smith at the time. Um, I would love to see, um, you know, because I mean, what men in black international made no money it's i mean you're, yeah. you're, you're probably not going to cover it on the podcast unless you do um, oh we are we uh, will be for sure. <laughs> fun um don't call me um but uh <laughs> but um it's it i would i would welcome a reboot at this point i i know uh international is only a couple of years old and you know it's still a franchise that could potentially have legs in its current format um but reboot it 
make um go back to the edgier now i know obviously everyone's like oh does everything have to be edgy these days but uh you know the it, looking at uh looking at the boys as an example you know the amazon show mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. really really good adaptation um and and i feel like you know again has someone that hasn't actually read the original material um you know try it try it as a kind of a, a more straight darker um property i'd be interested to see how it works um but but kind of i agree with you uh cam i, I don't understand where the struggle has come to uh to tell original sci-fi stories the way i've always seen men in black is um is it's basically like the matrix with aliens there's so much yeah. you could do there's so much behind the world the veneer of the world with all of this stuff happening underneath you know it's it's a, it's a fascinating world and and the one thing that i would say for men in black you know regardless if it's one two three or four you know i haven't seen four but it's never really dull it's never dull there's always something interesting to see rick baker's um alien effects are absolutely amazing um maybe not the special effects so much but you know there's always there's some interesting stuff still to explore I don't know. The uh, the middle point of Men in Black Two was pretty dull. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, is it a problem, kind of like Ghostbusters, which Sony also owns, where you have the original, which is this classic, and I don't think the original Men in Black is as good as Ghostbusters, but they are kind of similar, where they really grabbed people with a really good hook for their premise, but they were never able to replicate that in a you know sequel or a reboot or any way, and I just wonder if Men in Black has a little bit of that same problem. I just don't think Sony can make films. Well, that's also a case. Yeah, that, <laughs> for that's sure. fair. Well, we, we've touched on the subject, but I do want to give a shout out to Josh Brolin playing Agent K, young Agent K. I think he is the best thing in this film. Yes, by, by a mile, by a country mile. Yeah, it's incredible like how much Josh Brolin brings to this character. I absolutely love him in this movie. And just it could be just like a one-note Saturday Night Live like skit. He could just walk in, do impressions, and we'd be like, ha 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 and then by the 90 minute mark be like okay enough i get it i get it but the fact is he takes an impression of Tommy Lee Jones but brings so much humanity to it and we get to actually see the evolution of a young k over the course of this film and understand how he wound up as Tommy Lee Jones it's uh, again like i'm really in awe of what Josh Brolin accomplished given a problem production script that's being rewritten constantly and let's remember all the material being constantly rewritten and revised is his material and so the fact that he works as this through line throughout the movie, I mean, this is like a her- Herculean effort here. And I think he's incredible. I just wrote down, you could close your eyes and you would hear Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. It's remarkable what he does with the role. And I, that's why I think I would have liked to have seen more of him. But, oh, well, Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it makes complete sense. Even after watching the movie last night, like why did they not green light a Josh Brolin, Men in Black, you know, movie set in the 60s or 70s because it would have been cheaper because obviously a big part of the problem with this franchise around the time of Men in Black 3 is they're getting super expensive, largely because of Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones, and Spielberg as a producer. So, like, why not move forward with Josh Brolin in the 60s? You can have Alice Eve. She's not going to cost a lot either. Mm-hmm. You can bring in some other new characters. Like, why not? You have the world already set up. It seems like a no-brainer. You could slash the budget in half 
doing a part four that's a prequel to, with uh, Josh Brolin. Yeah, I guess I guess the only thing with it really is is it would suffer from that prequel syndrome because you you know that uh, that Kay would always win ultimately and survive because he needs to survive to grow into Tommy Lee Jones. Um, I an idea that I would have had is that you know kind of it was a bit of a thing back then at this point in time is you could have had a divergent timeline like with what Star Trek did with the JJ Trek movies and with, um, uh, with, with the X-Men prequels, um, you could have just split the timeline off. You don't, yeah. you know, and, and ultimately this is a fantasy alien land where you can just tell stories however you want. So I guess you could eliminate the whole um, prequelitis, uh, if that's a word. But uh, but yeah, I, I guess maybe at the time studios were a little kind of, oh, do we really want to tell prequel stories? And the one thing I guess, I mean, and, and we're a long way off of Josh Brolin kind of owning Hollywood with Thanos and uh, and Deadpool is back then, 2012, he wasn't exactly a bankable name, was he? No, but I mean, I don't know. You've got a lot of movies, you know, you look at... Um some of these movies on, you know, the box office that year. I mean, I don't know. Is Chris Evans a bankable name? He's in the Avengers, but like, it feels like at this point, the property's becoming the star more than the actors. So it seems like men in black is the star, not Josh Brolin. I, I feel like you could have sold the film to Sony with Josh Brolin, Alice Eve, a couple of the other people from the sixties and a new character that works with Josh Brolin or something like that. And there would be a third of the price, maybe even cheaper and they could just say, look, you'll make your money back on this one, at least. Yeah. I mean, looking at how much Men in Black cost, it was like 80 mil. I mean, you could probably do a Josh Brolin, Alice Eve, Men in Black 4, you know, for, for probably even less. You could probably do it for 40 to 60 um, and tell a much smaller scope story. Um, I, I'm still amazed that Men in Black 3 cost 225 mil. I, I'm just staggered. Staggered I by. think maybe that's part of the problem is that this movie was just such a disaster behind the scenes. The budget was so much. I wonder if they were just like, look how much effort it took us to come up with stories for Men in Black 2 and 3. Maybe we just need to take a break. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, and uh, yeah. Um, right. Before we start wrapping up, I want to shout out to Jermaine Clement uh, as Boris the Animal or Boris, as he likes to be referred to as. Uh <laughs> I think it was nice they went back to a little bit more of the horror factor that we had in the first film. Mm. Uh, but I, I quite liked his villain. He's more memorable than Lara Flynn Boyle's character of uh, was it Savina? S- Selina? I can't. Remember. Yeah, Selina. Yeah. Any thoughts? Uh, I'm. I, I, with all due respect uh, to Jermaine Clement. Uh, they spent they spent two hundred twenty five million on this film. Um, Jermaine Clement was uh, w- such an odd choice um, for a summer tentpole sci fi comedy movie. Um, not an unwelcome one. Um, I'm a big Jermaine Clement fan. Um, I would say that back then, two thousand twelve, I wasn't so uh, familiar with his work. Um, but he was fine. He was fine. I I I always felt that with uh with Men in Black Three is the villain was always kind of just a bit of an afterthought in in terms of you know the grand scheme of things. So I think it was always a film that was centered around the relationship between you know agents uh, J and K and how they needed each other and how important their relationship was. And you just had a villain kind of in there to to progress the story and to make the whole thing happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was fine. He was fine for me. Yeah, like he's very one note. He shoots darts and um, 
He goes back in time. I mean, really, and he he's really angry about his missing arm. Other than that, I don't know that I can tell you too much about this character. Um, but I think Jermaine Clement, he's threatening, which I think is important. Like, you want to be able to see him in this movie and go, like, this character is actually kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And I think he works for that. He's not funny. Um, you know, like, there's the weird tongue kiss thing with Nicole Scherzinger at the start of the movie that's very uncomfortable. Um, very uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable. I have a therapy session today just to <laughs> deal with that one. But um, he kind of suits the purpose of the movie. But I do think this franchise is kind of iffy with its villains. They are pretty one note across the board. Um, but uh, he does what he can. Although there's like moments where like in this one, that whole scene on the gyro bikes where he turns into like a CG character for like three minutes is just brutal. Like I feel like they often refuse to give character depth to this character in terms of, uh, you know, making him feel interesting versus just kind of throwing him into more of a plot function dynamic. So I don't know. I was just curious. That bike scenes always annoyed me because you can kind of tell it was pasted in because nothing changes between the beginning and the end of the chase. Like nothing comes out of it. He takes off with his Griffin character. Griffin's recovered at the end of the chase. Um, He steals a box that's empty. Um, So really you can tell they just really pasted that one in there to basically give the audience an action sequence. Did that bother you guys? I can't say I noticed uh, it, actually. Hands no, up. I didn't either. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> nah. Okay, that's fair enough. It looks it looks pretty bad, too. It looks like garbage when you're considering this is coming out the same year as Avengers and uh, Dark Knight Rises <laughs> and Skyfall. Oh, yeah, we touched on the CG earlier. It is pretty poor, especially it's that ropey. bit. Yeah, when he's falling off the Chrysler building, it looks like it's the scene out of Matrix Revolution where Neo is fighting all those Agent Smiths. And that was what year, Cam? Uh, that is 2003. Yep. Right. Nine years, and it still looks exactly the same. And they spent 225 yeah. million on this film. Someone yeah. give me an answer, please. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just, I'm still 225 million. I look. I know you guys said that they were paying people for three months, um, but wow, wow. I mean, it, the the effects just haven't aged well at all. And and then, like I said earlier, there's so much stuff that you didn't need to do. Well, we've also got Emma Thompson popping up as Agent O, replacing uh, Rip Torn as Agent Z. Uh, I'm happy to see a strong female character in this film. Not that she's written particularly well, uh, and not that she has much to do, but it is nice to see a female in some sort of power, unlike the last two films. Yeah, um, not really much to say. Uh, Good to see her in it. Obviously, always good to have uh, Brit represent. Uh, I would say, though, guys, uh, going back to what I was saying earlier, completely by accident, uh, she's much better in Johnny English 3, playing a very similar Mm. character. (laughs) It does feel like they are kind of, uh, you know, holding back on giving her anything crazy to do or anything that's that fun. Although, that said, I don't want to see her hanging from the ceiling like uh, Rip Torn doing Wire Foo like in the last movie. (laughs) But I will say... Speaking of humiliating moments for actors, the moment where Emma Thompson has to do the eulogy scene for Zed and speak in that alien language for an extended period of time is one of the most uncomfortable like few moments of my life. And this is someone who has sat through the Nicole Scherzinger um, tongue kissing scene. Like, I don't know which one I'm struggling more with. Um, it's really going back and forth, but both of them are giving me the shudders right now. I, I think I've um, I just blocked it out of my mind. I can't remember it. <laughs> oh, I, I distinctly remember it, and I distinctly remember saying she must have been on something to get through that scene. <laughs> Hopefully, alcohol. And it's long. It's long too. Like it's not just like you know, do like a five seconds of a wacky voice. It's like do like a minute or something. 
And she has to act through it as well. She's giving a eulogy and she has to act sad whilst making these horrendous noises like a dying animal. I mean, just a, just a, just another, uh, you know, feather in Emma Thompson's just massive cap at this point. Well, apparently she's coming back in Men in Black International. So I hope we have some more uh, throat singing coming our way. <laughs> we can only hope. Uh, uh <laughs> Another guest star in this film, we've got Michael Stuhlbarg as Griffin, who's just kind of an inconsequential character that carries the plot forward. The only thing I wrote down is he kind of looks like Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, he, he, yeah, a little yeah, bit. I, see. I, I, I think that Michael Stuhlbarg is um, probably one of this generation's greatest character actors. Agreed, 100%. You know, you had movies like Hugo. His uh, performance in Boardwalk Empire, uh, the HBO mm. show, is incredible. I love Michael Stuhlbarg. Um, yeah, I mean, a serious man. This is a guy who's just always incredible. I actually think he gives the second best performance in this movie. Yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, his performance here is okay. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, as, a, as an actor, as a versatile actor up there one of the best and uh it is kind of you know given the fact that i wouldn't have been familiar with this actor in 2012 now having seen him in so many other films and been so impressed by him countless times uh kind of kind of cool to see him and you go oh it's it's him it's him i mean i don't know i think he is really terrific in this movie because he's playing a character who's entirely a plot function but you have these moments like at the baseball stadium where he's allowing the um, the MIB guys to see like fifth dimensionally the way he sees the world. Um, and the way that Michael Stuhlbarg communicates this, he brings like a magic and wonder to these scenes that isn't on the page. This is entirely coming through his performance. And it happens again where we have that scene at the end where he departs from the agents and says, I can never bear to watch this mm. part. And it's like he brings so much emotion and weight to these moments in a very silly, goofy comic book comedy kind of movie. Like, I do think Michael Stuhlbarg, like Josh Brolin, is going well above and beyond the Call of Duty here. I wish I could see this film in Griffin's kind of fifth dimensional. <laughs> Where it was good. <laughs> yeah. I want to see that film, please. <laughs> the one thing, the one thing I didn't, I, I don't know, like I'm mixed on is the end where he's sitting at the diner alone, the agents have left, and he goes, uh-oh, did he not leave a tip? And we see an asteroid headed towards Earth, and it's kind of like an alternate reality where asteroid's going hit to hit the Earth if um, Tommy Lee Jones' character doesn't leave a tip. And I like the idea, I like the concept, it's fun that Tommy Lee Jones comes in, you know, throws the tip down, the uh, asteroid is, just, you know, destroyed by a satellite. But I don't know how I feel about Michael Stuhlbarg addressing the camera. That's the part that I kind of struggle with. I don't know that it works. See, I, I've always enjoyed the final sequence in a Men in Black film. Uh, didn't we mm -hmm. have we had the aliens playing marbles in one? We had. Yep. I can't remember the second one. Um, it's the locker. Scene. They're they're inside the locker. That's it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, it's like the whole world. Yeah, like, yeah. In the locker, um, yeah. I I like that. We didn't really get that with this one, which again is something else that left me disappointed. And there's one other thing that we need to address in the end credits. Um, but I didn't mind the breaking of the fourth wall because the end sequences have always been so out there. Um, but mm -hmm. I was disappointed that we didn't get more kind of aliens playing marbles or revelations that they're just in a bubble universe somewhere. I'll just say I'm with Agent M on this one. I think it's by that point in the film, you have those sort of tongue in cheek scenes at the end of each film so far. I don't mind him winking at the camera. It's not a big deal for me. Yeah, like it doesn't really, you know, ruin the movie for me in any way. It's just like I, I kind of went like, oh, I don't know how I feel about the breaking the fourth wall there. Um, 
you'd think though with a character who can see in five dimensions you know we talk about the marbles of the locker scene at the end of the first two movies they could have done something super crazy through that character Mm. that it feels like they take kind of the easy way out although i do think it works comedically yeah yeah i i think i think this film is very surface level at times so i'm not surprised i didn't dig very deep on the concept (laughs) yeah it is very surface level. Fair enough. Yeah. Speak, speaking of surface level, um, I mean, we, we've we've gotten to the end of the film, right? Okay. We've we've had that, you know. In my opinion, the 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 wonderful emotional climax of of the revelation, you know, the the time travel element, you know, uh, that part really really good, quite un- unexpected. The you know the end is what it is. They're eating pie, and then you have that. Um, who who in their right mind? commissioned a pitbull song to play over uh, the end credits mr worldwide it's men in black oh. international man oh. mr worldwide oh. Oh. oh god i didn't actually know who that was but um yeah i guess will smith didn't want to do another men in black rap song so they were like well we need some sort of rap song tied to this movie and that's what they went with they replaced will smith mr woo aha with pitbull uh it's it's not it's not good it's not good yeah i would sooner have heard tommy lee jones rapping than (laughs) (laughs) no 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 scott you've got to have tommy lee jones singing a cowboy song about the men in black perfect with with jermaine in character yes with jermaine clement on bass (laughs) as boris I thought, um, you know, just kind of tying off the actor stuff here, I thought like Bill Hader, who's so great, um, Will Arnett, who's so great, were not that great here. (laughs) They weren't very funny. Although I would say that I was quite blown away by Bill Hader's uh, Andy Warhol. Um, Like, nailed it. I don't know. It looked like he was kind of wearing some ear and nose prosthetics. I'm not sure if he was or not. But it it was so dead on that I I was very impressed by that. It wasn't funny at all. (laughs) <laughs> wasn't funny like the yeah like the impression works 100 yeah. percent. but in terms of being a fun character it, it's not great <laughs> not great at all and will will arnett i'm like what is he even doing like i don't understand the gist of this character patrick warburton was in the second movie and at least i understood the hook of that character i don't even understand anything about the will arnett character i assume it's meant to confuse you but he just seemed confused himself <laughs> yeah <laughs> he too had seen the tongue kiss <laughs> He heard the demo tape of Tommy Lee Jones rapping and he was just bewildered. <laughs> Many Black Free. Confusion. <laughs> oh dear. I'll throw in uh, one other cameo that popped up that uh, made me smile. I don't. I think a lot of sci-fi fans might have spotted it. Um, at the, uh, um, at the um, Coney Island sequence, you can see in the background an alien from the sci-fi classic This Island Earth walking around that's that's a deep cut that's the i mean the the only thing that i had was that i saw tim burton on a monitor and i was like is that tim burton and then i went on wikipedia and i was like it was i'm glad you brought that up because the first couple movies really had a lot of fun with celebrities who are um mm. aliens on earth and it felt like this movie really didn't do that as much um you had yeah the tim burton stuff but it's way in the background um there was someone else in the background. I can't even remember who it was. It wasn't even that interesting. But Lady Gaga. You really had to feel Lady Gaga. I think Justin another Bieber. One too, but um, but they really are like background jokes. They don't feel like the movies. It felt like they were kind of phoning them in at that point. You you can't blame them for not 
relying on an old joke. True. I, I, I'd appreciate something fresh. Yeah, because they didn't go back to Tony Shalhoub's character. Frank the Pug was a very large painting on Will Smith's <laughs> bedroom wall. Um, uh, you know, they didn't go back to the greatest hits the way the second one does. So I guess I should actually give them more compliments for that than, uh, than criticize the movie for it. Yeah, because, I mean, in you know, when you guys were talking about The Men in Black 2, I mean, the, one of the biggest critiques was that, you know, you guys felt that it was a copy and paste, cookie cutter kind of job. And I, and I do think that um, that is one of the positives of this film, is that it just tried really hard to do something completely different. Um, but I did like the winks mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, the kind of cameos that we got in this one. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of cameos, I had some information. Uh, I was digging through IMDb before we recorded this, and... Cam, you may not know this, but did you know that Vern Troyer is in this film? Oh, is he really? Oh, wow. And where is that, Scott? Vern Troyer is actually playing the alien crab baby that uh, Tommy Lee Jones slaps no. Mr. Wu across the face. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, for, for reference, is that for real? Uh, is that for uh, real? Oh no. No no no. No no no. no, no, no. no. Um I, I won't I won't give too much of a way, but in our first Men in Black episode, uh Cam mistakenly points out Vern Troyer is a very small baby. <laughs> right, okay. That's my bad. That's my bad, guys. I'm sorry, I'm not in on that one. Oh no, it's his bad. It's his bad. <laughs> what are you gonna do when we run out of men in black movies to make that joke with? <laughs> I don't know. I'll find something. Vern Troy will sneak his way. Oh no, we've got the we've got the Austin Powers films to come up with, so don't worry. Oh, good point. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've uh, arrived at our destination, and that is the ultimate question: Does Men in Black Three make the knock list? Michael, you're our guest. Fire away. No. Okay, Cam. <laughs> uh, no, I mean. I feel much warmer towards this movie than I did the second one. The second one was like, basically I had to, had to edit out all the profanity that came out of my mouth when you asked me if the second one made the knock list. Um, this one I go, it's a fun movie. I don't know. Like the first one didn't make the list. So this is not better than the first. It, it has some fun stuff from Josh Brolin, as we've said, but like, I don't know. It's a forgettable blockbuster that people can have fun with, but it's not anything that would make the knock list. Well, before I chuck in my opinion, that means absolutely nothing now. Uh, Michael, did you want to add any more to your no? Um, no. It, okay. <laughs> yes. 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 In the respect, the the, the knock list is uh, designed and designated as, as being the, the place where uh, the best of the best goes. And uh, this... Uh, this film doesn't deserve to be there. No, I I completely agree. Cam said it best for me. If the first one didn't make it in, this no, sure as hell doesn't get it yeah. in. But I will say this is better than the second one. By a mile. By a mile. Uh, although, if you take Pitbull out of the equation and replace it with Nod Your Head, this probably uh, would go a little bit... You know, I really just don't like Pitbull. So I, I don't know if that's uh, come across as apparent enough. <laughs> What's the name of the Tommy Lee Jones song? Be better than Pitbull. Home on the Range, the remix. <laughs> Fine. He he'd be well into it, I'm sure. Well, there we go, folks. That's three no's and Men in Back Three is not making the knock 
list. Well, before we discuss what we're tackling next week, I want to have a quick shout out to another podcast that we love, and that is that song from that movie that we've actually featured on recently. So have a quick listen to this clip, and we'll see you on the other side. Hi, I'm Dietrich. I'm Alex. And I'm Ben. We're from the podcast That Song From That Movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. We want you to join us on our voyage across the cinematic sound waves as we take a deep dive on a new song and movie each week to figure out just what makes them tick. Already we've set sail with Celine Dion on the Titanic, found a friend in Toy Story, and gotten drenched out in the rain with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Hopefully each breakdown allows us to answer the ultimate question of what's better, the movie or the song. Or at least learn something new along the way. Just like learning that Toy Story 4 is a meaningless cash grab without a soul. You can subscribe right now on all good podcast platforms. If you use one of the bad ones, then that's on you, and we can't be held responsible. Subscribe to that song from that movie. There you go, folks. Have a listen to that song from that movie. Hopefully they never pick a Pitbull song. Otherwise, I will never, ever appear on their show again. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can find them, of course, on all major podcast apps, which leads me quite smoothly on to Michael. Oh, well, that's that's quite a segue. Um, thank you. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. But where can people hear more from you? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much, guys, for having me uh, on this episode. It's It's been a real blast. And, uh, you know, the film may not have been the best, uh, may not have been the most memorable, but I will remember this conversation for a long time. So thank you so much and uh, look forward to joining you again uh, on another episode soon, hopefully. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of the social media networks, YouTube, uh, at TrekLad. Uh, as I said earlier, I've got the Networking on Nimbus Free podcast where I speak to members of the Star Trek community and learn what they love about the Star Trek franchise. I'm also on YouTube. I'm creating content a lot uh, at the moment i am reacting or cringing my way through most of star trek tng's first season uh so uh come and uh, give me a sub but um find me on twitter i'm mostly on twitter uh trying to share the love and uh drop star trek in good vibes as much as i can hmm. very nice i'm sure he's doing uh, season one of tng justice that's right that's right good one scott <sighs> Unlike season one of TNG. <laughs> it's been rough. Oh, yeah. Well, it's been a long road, hasn't it? <laughs> so, Cam, what are we tackling next week? Scott, we're hopping right back in the time machine, and we're going back to 1968 to hang out with Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood in 1968's Where Eagles Dare. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you dare to accept it, is to watch Where Eagles Dare and... Don't forget, of course, to follow us discreetly at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows. <laughs>